Welcome to Becoming Limitless. This is the podcast for entrepreneurs who want to optimize their brain and their body with biohacking. I'm going to teach you how to eliminate brain fog and upgrade your health so you can have more productivity, energy, and growth in your business. I'm your host, Tanessa Shears. Let's jump in. Welcome back to the Becoming Limitless podcast. I have a bit of a different episode for you guys today. This is an episode I've been really excited to record, but also, if I'm going to be honest with you, a little nervous because I'm sharing some of my views, alternative views, and hacks that I have found made a difference in my pregnancy, in my birth, and in my postpartum experiences. So, What you're going to hear today is an episode with so many of my personal decisions and why I made them and the health reasons for them. You're going to hear hacks that helped the process, some things that, you know, made pregnancy pain a little bit easier, things that made delivery or were supposed to make delivery and birth a little easier, and also things about, you know, the postpartum period that I felt nobody told me and that I really wish I would have known because I have been through two pregnancies and I have been through two labors and they were entirely different. And I have also been obviously through two postpartum periods now and I am almost through my second postpartum period. We are 11 weeks postpartum right now. So I wanted to use this episode not only to be, you know, sharing what worked for me, what didn't work for me, hacks that helped along the way and a bit of my story woven in because This episode really spoke to me because I have been having tons of conversations in my DMs on Instagram lately with women in my community right now who are pregnant or are just in that postpartum period and we are all just doing the best we can and there are some things that I did in the second time around that I didn't do in the first time and vice versa, some things I didn't do in the second time that I did in the first that I feel really were in the best interest of me, of my family, and of my health. So I'm really excited to share that all with you. And you know, how the heck does this relate to business? Because this is a podcast that is all about optimizing our brain, body, and health so that we can have more performance in our business. Well, if you are pregnant and you run a business, we want to be as energized as possible. We want our birth to be as great as possible. And that postpartum period, because like we're all different, but I jumped back into work about two and a half weeks postpartum because I love my clients and I love feeling like me in addition to being a mom. So I really want to give you just some just some different ways of looking at pregnancy on all of this, because if it does help you show up in your business better while you're pregnant or postpartum, then, you know, if there's even one thing you can walk away with, then that's fantastic. So like I said, plenty of postpartum and pregnant women in my community right now, women trying to get pregnant. Hopefully you'll learn something that you'll love. And our business is how we show up is based on our mental and our physical health. So it does tie in, but this is also a bit of a story episode, a personal episode and a for fun episode. And of course, you know, there's nothing really that can take away that fatigue that comes with first trimester or, you know, the genetic laxity of my hips that made me nearly crippled in my last trimester of the second pregnancy, but these are kind of just things that made me feel good for me. So I do want to put a giant 
flashing red disclaimer at the beginning of this interview that this is all based on my personal experience, what worked for me and my family and my health. And it is so important that you listen to this and that you do your own research, consult with your own doctor or your midwife or your medical practitioner, look into everything I'm going to say for yourself and make sure it's a good fit for you. But these are just some of the things that, Hey, I wish somebody had told me in my first pregnancy and that I found out just through being curious and having health be the field that I'm obsessed with and always wanting to learn more. So like I said, as you're listening to this, you're going to hear some of my decisions I made. This and everything you hear is not a judgment on your choices that you make with your pregnancy, your baby and your life nor is it going to be an invite for opinion on what you think I should have done because there are going to be some things you're going to hear that I did that are a little bit controversial, but that's okay because I'm the best mom for my baby and you can be the best mom or dad or parent for your baby. So if you have questions or are curious about anything I talk about, I'd be more than happy to chit chat in the Instagram DMs. I'm at Tanessa Shears. Definitely feel free to reach out, but just keep in mind that this is my journey and I'm not doing this episode to get opinions on if you think I did the right or the wrong thing. I want you to listen with an open mind. I want you to be curious and just know that, you know, we can all do this differently and it can all be right. All right, let's jump in. So I got pregnant in September of 2021 and I knew that during this pregnancy, I was going to try to do things as best I could a bit differently than the last pregnancy because my views on the healthcare system have obviously changed over the last two years with everything that has gone on. And I made it my goal to be well-educated, well-researched, and I made the decision that I wanted minimal intervention unless medically necessary, meaning there was a reason during some part of the process that something had to happen, but I really just wanted to take a minimal approach because during my first pregnancy, like, you can find it. I did an episode called why I annoy my doctor and I did an in-depth episode on being your own advocate for your own health. You are the only person who is going to care about your health the way you do. And you need to ask questions and you need to push back and you need to stand up for what you know is right with your body and your family. So like a lot has changed. And I noticed if you listen to that episode on why I annoy my doctor, you'll listen to my story on how I diagnosed my own blood clots and got myself treatment when I was blown off by um, a doctor and an ER uh, doctor as well. Two doctors in a row blew me off. And if it hadn't have been for me questioning, I don't know where I would have been. I had two blood clots. I could have died. So this is the approach that I wanted to take in this time because during my last pregnancy, I was offered prescriptions nonstop. Like, oh, here's a prescription for an anti-nausea. But I literally said, actually, the nausea is not too bad. I just feel a little funny in the mornings. So I, to me, that doesn't warrant taking a medication. Or I one time said, yeah, I have heartburn this time. And I was written a prescription for heartburn. But you have a baby compressing your stomach and pushing food back up your esophagus. Of course, we're going to have heartburn. It doesn't mean something has gone wrong. And I mean, if there's severe heartburn where you can't even eat, that's one thing. But I was experiencing mild heartburn. And I just noticed how quick the doctors were that I worked with because I had to work with a team of OBs at the time while I was pregnant because I 
was considered high risk because I had blood clots in the past and I was just noticing how quick everyone was to write a prescription for every side comment that I made. So I went into that pregnancy and I refused a lot of stuff, but this time I went into it with a very open mind and I just wanted to know everything about anything because if you guys have listened to this podcast, you know that I like to get to the science, to the base, to the root cause, and then bring in my personal opinions on things, right? So I actually declined several of the tests during pregnancy this time. So they, and I want you to keep in mind that I did every one of these tests in my first pregnancy and every one of these things, but I didn't in my second pregnancy just because I spent the time and I made different decisions. So I actually declined the gestational diabetes test. So for me, when I went and got that test the first time, like there is very, there are very few scenarios in my life where I will have that much sugar in one sitting that you would get during that kind of test. So that is never going to be the norm for me. And when I had the sugar test during my first pregnancy, I got very, very nauseous and baby was moving. I could tell baby was stressed out. So this time I was like, hey, I eat very healthy. I sleep really well. I take care of my body. So how about this? I want you, and I said this to my midwife, I want you to give me a hemoglobin A1C test instead. And this test basically, this and a fasting glucose test, it basically is like, what are your glucose levels when you wake up in the morning? And a hemoglobin A1C test basically looks at how high your blood sugar has been over the last three months. And I said to her, if these blood tests come back and indicate that I could be at risk for gestational diabetes, I am more than happy to do the test. But until I get indication that that is medically necessary, I will not be drinking that much sugar because it just won't happen in my everyday life and I do not wanna make myself sick and stress out my baby. So guess what? I did the A1C test and I did the fasting blood glucose test and they came back really low and healthy just as reflective of my normal life has been. And so I didn't have to put myself and my baby through that stress. And I did during the first pregnancy, but when I started questioning things, I just learned that there was a much more natural route. I would much rather get a blood test than take a drink on the off chance that I had gestational diabetes. So that's something I turned down. What I did get during this pregnancy was I had my um, dating ultrasound at the beginning and I had my anatomy ultrasound because I found value in those. But my midwife actually offered me two other uh, ultrasounds during the pregnancy. She offered me one, uh, she was away and she wanted to just make sure things were going well because she had an, an interim midwife. And I said, no, thank you. I Unless there's a medical reason that we need to be doing an ultrasound on baby, no, thank you. And I also declined the one at four weeks before, or I guess 36 weeks, four weeks before. And you know, like with this decision, I always think like there's nothing medically necessary. I'm measuring fine. My blood pressure's fine. Baby's heart rate is fine. Like everything seems great. So I'm just not going to do anything other than medically necessary. Now for me, I wanted my dating ultrasound so that I knew when baby was due and I wanted to know that baby was anatomically healthy. So those made sense to me, but I had declined the other two that were offered to me. Now, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I actually was offered an ultrasound at 36 weeks because she was measuring several weeks behind. Now, I can't tell you that I would have made the same decision 
in that time, but it was just something interesting for you to consider and to talk to your uh, practitioner about, about whether just the, the check-in ultrasounds that they like to do are necessary, right? So I just wanted to make sure, you know, wasn't needed, so no thank you this time. And speaking of all of that, the other thing I did different this time is I went with a midwife instead of a traditional OB doctor. Now, I, after being through this, I preach from the rooftops loud as I can. If you can get a midwife, wow, what a different experience. I found that this was like having a friend with me on the journey, someone who knew me personally. Like I wasn't just a medical file that had a 10 minute appointment every month or every three months. This was someone who I saw for at least half an hour. I had conversations about my fears and things I wanted and things I had questions about. And I felt just for her, she was coming from such a wonderful, neutral, caring place where she genuinely cared about what I wanted. And if you are in the Tri-Cities area in Vancouver, send me a message on Instagram and I will send you her way if you're looking for a midwife. She is absolutely wonderful. Um, but even like during the birth process, I didn't know this, but the midwife was there the entire time during my birth. Whereas the doctor, I didn't even have my doctor attend my birth. It was one of her colleagues because they were on call that day. So just knowing that the person that was going to be my biggest support alongside my husband would be there with me, holding my hand, encouraging me. I developed a relationship with her. This was so, so great during my pregnancy. And during my first pregnancy, I actually, um, I had an epidural. And one of the things I was really interested in this time is what would it be like without an epidural? Because I was so sick during my last pregnancy. Um, during birth, I threw up nonstop. And that was the reason why I got the epidural because I couldn't stop throwing up. But I didn't know that this time was going to be the same. And I really liked the idea, but I was scared. And she says, yeah, well, why don't you just try it without the epidural? And I had like never considered that thought before. And every week over the months leading up to birth, we talked about it and she encouraged me and she shared stories from her other clients about people who had been able to do it and alleviated my fears about what if I can't handle the pain, then what? And built my belief every single week that I could. And she said, you know, most second births are faster. We're going to be, I'm going to be there. I'm going to help your husband manage the pain. I'm going to be there with you. I've got tricks that we, you know, have worked really well. And she had built such a, a profound just belief in myself that I would, I wanted to try at least, you know, whereas before when I had started the pregnancy, I was like, oh, no way, definitely getting the epidural. So, and there's nothing wrong with epidurals. I got one on my first pregnancy, but I was like, I cannot handle the pain. But she really fostered that in me. And it was so, it changed going into labor. My first pregnancy going in, I was nervous. I didn't know what to expect. But with this one, I felt so calm going in, even excited, right? Like, and this was coming after, like, I felt so positive and I was ready and I had a good mindset and I was just low stress. And this was even after my first labor, which was a very painful 18 hour back labor, which basically means baby's spine and my spine were back to back, which is like way more painful. I will tell you that. So coming out of that, and then I opted for the epidural and the epidural failed. I will make sure I leave a link actually in the description about, I did a YouTube video talking about my last birth story 
and I don't traumatize it like like dramatize it like a lot of you know YouTube accounts do it's really just like hey this was my experience I would definitely do it again but here's what happened like I had a failed epidural and a back labor and 18 hours and it's very long so she was able to get me into a place to just go into it feeling calm oh so I just love I love a midwife I Really, really, really recommend it if you are in a position to be able to work with a midwife um, as opposed to a doctor. I'm sure there are great doctors out there, but I have just even heard stories from so many of my girlfriends that a midwife is the way to go if you have that choice. Now, another thing nobody told me was that being pregnant with a two-year-old is way harder because before I would just be pregnant and then I would have a nap and that I could nap when I wanted, or rest when I wanted, or worked when I wanted. But when you're with a two-year-old and you're at home running a business, you have to work during the naps because that's the only time. But then when do I nap and when do I rest? So it definitely was a lot more taxing and that was something I wished somebody would have mentally prepared me for going into that second pregnancy is that it's going to feel harder because you are raising a two-year-old and that's okay. And I did learn that, but it took me a little while. I was a little stubborn, but it took me a little while into my pregnancy to really be like, oh, okay, I've got a two-year-old. I'm just, I have to slow down. My business might slow down and it's all okay. And I think had I learned that earlier, I wouldn't have been putting so much pressure on myself to sustain the rate of work at which I was doing and working out and everything like that. So another hack that, uh, or thing that you might learn um, is if you experience a lot of pelvic pain in your pregnancy, meaning like your pubic joint is looser than it should be and the bones are grinding, that's what happened to me, or your SI joint, kind of where your hips and your spine meet, that's called your sacroiliac joint. My joints got so loose that literally my pubic bone would pop when I would roll over or get up or walk. And so would my SI joint, like they would audibly pop and the bones ground together. I know this is super graphic, but it was exceptionally painful. Like I could barely walk. I would wake up in the middle of the night in that last month, just crying. I couldn't sleep and the sleep was making me emotional. And oh my gosh. And someone early on said to me, hey, go see a chiropractor. And I'm like, there is no way I'm letting anyone near my pelvis while I am pregnant and cracking me. That sounds crazy. No, thank you. And I put it off and I put it off. And then my midwife sat me down one day. She's like, this is ridiculous. Go see this woman. I went to go see a woman uh, at a chiropractor and she, I went in there, I was so nervous. And she did do a couple definitely crack adjustments, but she taught me exercises to help manage all the pain I was in. And I started going seeing her at 36 weeks. This is by the time I wasn't, you know, like, no, I've got this, I've got this. No, I went in, I literally hadn't done leg workouts in like five months by that point. So I went in and I saw her and she did some adjustments and I got off the table and I walked straight without a wobble for the first time in like I was in this kind of pain at about four months and I had a long time to go. So I was about five months of debilitating pain, but it was fascinating. I was like, I'm walking. And I went and saw her one to two times a week leading up. I even saw her on my due date because I ended up being two days late. I saw her on my due date and the amount of pain that she took me out of was phenomenal. So if you are in a position where you are experiencing a lot of pelvic pain or a lot of joint pain related to pregnancy, 
a chiropractor is not as scary as I thought it was. It is very gentle. And the exercises the girl I saw gave me really helped to tide me over in between appointments. Gosh, I recommend seeing a chiro. It made such a difference. The other thing she taught me to do was uh, my husband, Flynn, he was actually able to get me out of a decent amount of pain and give me some pain relief by an exercise she taught me. So picture that you are on all fours, hands and knees, and what my husband would do, he'd come up behind me and he'd take one hand on each side of my hips, just maybe like kind of where my butt was, but like up a little bit more towards the middle and he would squeeze, 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 squeeze. So what it would do is it would hold those joints together but at the same time, relax my pelvic floor. And this helped so much with the pain. Like it was temporary relief for sure. But on those nights where I was like, I couldn't get to sleep, I couldn't get comfortable, him going up behind me if I was on all fours and squeezing with both hands, pressing my hip bones together, uh, really, really helped. Um, and the last thing about pregnancy that I think really helped, well, and I think this is an obvious one, most of us know this, is a pregnancy pillow. Now, this really helped because I had a lot of problems rolling over. So getting a pillow in between my knees really helped keep my pelvis stable and aligned so I wasn't in so much pain. So those are definitely the things that changed for my pregnancy. Basically, it was no to unnecessary prescriptions. Um, I did the A1C and the fasting test instead of gestational diabetes, declined the optional ultrasounds, went with a midwife instead, um, realized it was harder with a two-year-old, just wish I was mentally prepared, and going to see a chiropractor for all of that pelvic pain. Now, those are the things that I found definitely a lot more helpful during pregnancy. Now, when it comes to the actual birth, so we're shifting into the birth part of the episode right now, I had all of the things ready this time because like I told you before, I had set the intention that I was going to try to give birth without an epidural. That was the goal, right? I talked to friends about it. I was mentally ready. I was emotionally ready. So of course I was scouring the internet for all of the different hacks. And so here are some of the ones that I had in my back pocket. Now you're going to hear the story of what went down during labor and why I didn't use any of them. But I had essential oils packed, so I specifically had um, mint and lavender. So lavender is calming, and mint specifically was meant to help with the nausea. So I mentioned before that during my first labor, I was in so much pain that I kept vomiting over and over again. So I know that mint definitely does help reduce nausea. So I was planning on using that um, to help with the nausea if it came on this time. Um, I was watching a YouTube video, this is another hack, and she actually had two combs that she brought with her into labor. So I had combs in my labor bag, and essentially, uh, just think of like the fine tooth combs that we use for our hair, right? One in each hand, and what you do is you put the teeth of the comb into your palm of your hand when you're going through a contraction, and you squeeze, right? And so the goal is, is to create enough discomfort and pain in the palm of your hand from the combs that it overrides some of the pain uh, signals that are being sent to your brain during the contraction. And now every video and a lot of things I've read on this, many women found it very helpful when they were you know, doing um, an unmedicated birth. And so I had my combs, I was excited about them. Um, the other thing I had on hand this time was gravel because I was so nauseous from the pain that my midwife said, hey, get some gravel. And when you notice yourself starting to go into labor and starting to, the contraction starting to pick up, 
Take some gravel, it'll help with the nausea. So I had that. And the other thing, I don't even know why this didn't occur to me during my first labor, but she said, yeah, one thing that will help with the contractions is take a little bit of Tylenol. So Tylenol is something so simple that, I mean, I mean, it's not gonna wipe out contractions, but it definitely helped. I didn't even know if it was placebo, but it feels definitely like it helped soften the edge on the contractions. Uh, the other thing that we packed this time was we have one of those like hypervolt massage guns with a ball on the end that like punches you over and over again, but it's a massage gun. We brought that with us and we also bought um, like the cross ball. So something that I could really get into because like I said, my first labor was back labor. Um, so I, my back spasmed the whole time and I had Charlie horses in my legs the whole time. So definitely was gonna get in there um, to help my husband because he just used his fist last time and my gosh, he was exhausted at the end. So we were trying to like preventatively help him with what we had gone through. So essential oils, combs, gravel, Tylenol, and massage guns and balls. So that's what we had packed in our bag. But the fun thing was is I woke up at 11.38 at night on May 31st of 2022, so that was this year. I woke up and my water had broken in bed and I had dreams that I was peeing and I was like, what the heck? And I woke up and I was like, I'm actually peeing. What is going, oh, that's way too much. Oh my gosh. And then I was like, oh my gosh, Flynn, Flynn, Flynn. And he's like still sleeping and I'm like shaking him and he wakes up, he's like, what? I'm like, get it towel and he's like why I'm like my water broke and so he ran and got me a towel and I was like oh this is so weird I wonder this is it it's that moment when you're like we're there's a baby coming there's a baby coming we're going into labor this is happening oh my gosh and I was so excited and I got up and I was like oh oh my gosh we haven't packed our hospital bag like we packed the baby stuff but I hadn't packed any of my like hospital clothes or anything like that. And I was like, we have to pack. Oh my gosh. And I called my midwife. I was like, my water broke. She's like, do you have any contractions? I was like, no, I don't have any. And she's like, oh, well, here's what we're going to do. You call me back if you get any contractions. And if you don't get any by 8 a.m. in the morning, come into the hospital. We're going to have to induce you because your water broke. And I was like, oh man, okay, fine. But I'm going to pack anyways because I know that this baby is still coming sometime in the next day or two. So I hung up with my midwife and we packed our bags and, you know, got everything ready and our toothbrushes packed everything up. And then it was probably at about 1245. So I said my, my water broke at 1138. At about 1245, right when we were done packing and getting everything tired, all tidied up, I started getting a little bit of a contraction. I was like, oh my gosh, I better get back to sleep right now because I've heard that one of the best things you can do is if when you feel your contraction starting, if you can get back to sleep. So I jump into bed, I try to get back to sleep. But I mean, when you know there's a baby coming and you're having contractions, it is very hard to sleep. And I was laying there and I was like, I tried, I really tried. And I looked over at my husband, I was like, I'm not getting back to sleep, there's no way. I'm too excited there's a baby coming, oh my goodness. So we actually ended up just kinda hanging out. Um, we went and got our big exercise ball from downstairs and I sat on the exercise ball and bounced while my husband laid in bed and we watched Better Call Saul because that was what we were making our way through at the time. And I, we watched probably, I would say like one episode, maybe one and a half episodes and the contractions were mild and we were timing them, right? And the contractions were like a minute and a half to two minutes apart. And I was like, oh, these aren't actually that bad. Okay, so I'm bouncing away anyways and just waiting. And then it, it's about like 3 a.m. I would say by now. And I called my midwife and I was like, so my contractions are between 45 seconds and a minute apart. 
but I don't know if I should go in. And the reason why I said this was because I was throwing up from pain. It was so bad during my first labor. And I got to the hospital and they checked me and they're like, you're only one centimeter dilated, you have to go home. And I was throwing up so much that they actually couldn't send me home because I couldn't walk. Um, but I was so determined to not be sent home because I don't wanna go home. I just wanna go to the hospital and have a baby. And I was like, nope, I know how painful that was. I'm waiting until I get to that point. But I said to my midwife, I was like, my contractions are 45 seconds apart. She's like, what are you doing? Go to the hospital. I was like, yeah, okay, okay, we'll go, I guess. And I called my mom and my mom came over. And by the time she got there, it was probably about, I would say about 3.30, 3.45 in the morning. And we were joking around. And by this point, the contractions were at the point where I probably had to start talking and doing a bit of swaying and like, really focusing during the contractions, but then they'd go away and I'd go back to normal and and we were taking photos and videos and I went and said bye to my daughter and my mom was over so she could hang out with, with my daughter when we went to the hospital. And then we moseyed our way out of there and my husband's like, we should really get going. I was like, yeah, fine. And we got in the car and we drove to the hospital and I was like, we were listening to music and we were singing. And I remember um, Drake's pop star was playing the whole way there and we were singing and having a good time. And I was like, oh, these are so much like less intense than my contractions last time. I don't, we're just gonna get sent home. It's gonna be terrible. And we get to the hospital and I'm like, the contractions are at the point now where I'm like pretty much having to stop talking, but then I just get up and go back to normal. And we get checked into the hospital by the time we actually like get admitted into the labor ward. Um, like we get upstairs and get checked in. It's about 4.30 in the morning now and I get put in the room and they're gonna check me to see if I need to go home or I'm good enough. So my midwife gets there and she checks me and she's like, you are six to seven centimeters dilated. I was like, oh my gosh, wow, I didn't realize I waited that long. And I was like, well, that is the difference between back labor and, and non-back labor because back labor had me on the floor at one centimeter and this was six to seven centimeters. And I looked at her and I was getting a little nervous and I did get nauseous and I threw up once and I looked at her, I was like, do you, do you think I can do this? Do you think I can do this without an epidural? Cause all this doubt had set in because you know, the contractions start picking up in intensity and I just threw up because the last one was so painful. And all I could picture at that moment was doing hours of labor like I did last time, throwing up the whole time. And she goes, yes, absolutely you can do this. And I was like, I burst into tears. I was like, okay, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try. And then she left the room for like two minutes and I'm getting up and trying to like move around. And then I was like, I just really feel like there's pressure. Like I feel like, I feel like there's something bearing down. I, I can feel like I have to push. And she comes back in and she's like, all right, let's get you into the birthing suite. And she moved me from the check-in room to the birthing suite room. And we were in there like maybe five minutes. I was like, I really feel like I have to push. And she checked me again and she's like, you're 10 centimeters, let's go. I was like, what? You just checked me like 10 minutes ago and I was six centimeters. She goes, yeah, you're fully dilated. I don't know what happened. And to be quite honest, I, I don't know if it was a combination of the chiropractor getting my hips in the right spot or being just really low stress or the bouncing on the ball or it was just a different pregnancy. But I really feel like I had such confidence instilled in me from feeling like I could do it, that my body had relaxed and I'd fully dilated like within 10 minutes. And then she's like, okay, let's get pushing. And so I think I pushed for a total of like 10, maybe 15 minutes. And I did use, um, the, uh, 
uh, what do you call it? The laughing gas. And I use the laughing gas because I was getting nauseous a little bit and also because I, the contractions were just so intense at that point. Um, so I found that the interesting thing about the laughing gas is I don't know that it did anything for the pain, but what it did do was I, I dissociated. Like I could see myself giving birth and I could like, it was like an out of body. Like I came out and came back in and it was really weird. Uh, I don't know how to explain it, but the fascinating thing about the laughing gas was, is you, you inhale and exhale deeply into the apparatus while you are contracting and then you take it out and laugh gas only lasts for like 15, 20 seconds. So you're completely back to normal. So you can hear instructions and stuff like that. And it was so funny. My midwife, I got out a really good Yelp at one point during a contraction. She said to me, she goes, get control of yourself. Stop yelling. And she goes, you need to maintain control. You are in control of this. And I was like, okay, okay. So anyways, um, she was wonderful. Everyone is so encouraging. And I got to tell you, like having experienced Obviously, I didn't have, even if I wanted an epidural, I didn't have enough time. But um, when I had an epidural with the first birth, I found that I was able to, like, they told me to push. And I was like, okay, I know these are the muscles that should contract when I push. And I'm going to just, I think I'm squeezing them. Versus during a birth without an epidural, I found it was fascinating. I was, there is something that I learned about postpartum called the the um, fetal what is it? The FER reflex, a fetal expulsion reflex. I think that's what it was called. Anyways, it, your body literally expels. And the best way, if you haven't gone through this experience, the best way I could say, it's like my body wanted to eject the baby. And it's kind of like that feeling of, you know, like when you're really sick and you're throwing up and then your body is still throwing up, even though nothing's coming out. And you're kind of like at that the end of that throw up feeling like, like there's not like you're pushing, but there's nothing coming out. That is exactly what I felt. Like my body was contracting the baby. It was so crazy to feel. And I was like, this is so different from last time. Um, so baby came out, um, at 508. So we got to the hospital at 4:30, and baby arrived at 508. And I was like, oh my gosh, I almost could have been one of those people that had their baby in the car because I was just so determined to not get sent home early. So if you are going through your second labor, just know it can be a lot faster than, and I mean, I knew this, but I mean, I didn't expect for it to be this much. My water broke at 1138, baby was out at 508. So this labor was entirely different. So it was really interesting. Anyway, so that, that was kind of what happened during the birth. So I didn't even end up getting to use the epidural. And when baby came out, it was a surprise. We didn't know if it was going to be a girl or a boy because we kept it a surprise. So when they pulled baby out, I was sobbing and I kept going back and forth between saying, I did it. I can't believe I did it. Meaning like I gave birth of an epidural because I, I believed I could, but there was a lot of doubt. And then my midwife goes, hey, dad, what's a baby? Is it a boy or a girl? And my husband goes, it's a girl. And I was shocked. And I was like, it's a girl? Bawling my eyes out and going back and forth between, I did it. It's a girl. I did it. It's a girl. Like it was such a cool moment. Like that surprise. Oh my gosh. If you have the option. And I mean, I can't, honestly, I would say probably 20 people on Instagram reached out to me and told me, don't find out the gender for the second one. Keep it a surprise because I found out with the first one. It is such a cool moment finding out the gender in real time instead of from an ultrasound. Like the shock. I was, oh my gosh. Like everyone thought it was a boy. All of my clients, 
all of my family, husband's side and mine, not one person thought it was a girl. We were shocked. But so they put the baby on my chest and it was just crying and holding my husband's hand and we did it. It was amazing. Um, but um, what uh, some of the things, okay, so anyways, that was the story. So now let's go into the hacky part of things because I really wanted to share that too because it, it just shows you birth can go so many different ways and even two births from the same mom can go so different ways. So Anyway, so one of the things that we had asked our midwife was we wanted a very delayed cord clamping this time. So last time, the first baby, we did a one minute cord delay, which means we just let the blood from the placenta keep pumping into baby. But this time we opted to let the cord go white and flat before cutting, which means my placenta had pumped all blood that was circulating within the baby system into baby because that blood is so rich in stem cells and everything like that. And we just really wanted her to get all of the benefits possible. So we let the cord go white and flat. So it was probably, I mean, this is, my husband told me this because I obviously don't remember because there was so much going on, but it was about five minutes before we actually cut the cord. So this is obviously dependent on if your birth, if your baby needs treatment or, you know, there's an emergency or you have an emergency postpartum, but I definitely let the cord go and let our baby get all the blood before cutting it this time. Now, this is where we started making some alternative decisions. And like I said, remember, um, research on your own. I'm just going to tell you what we did. So I declined almost all postpartum interventions this time. So normally, and I didn't know this during my first pregnancy. First of all, I didn't know that they did any of this. Second, I didn't know that any of it was optional. So what I declined was the oxytocin injection that they give you into your leg after you deliver the uh, deliver your baby. So what they do is they stick you in your leg and the whole point of it is to help your uterus contract down so that it prevents postpartum bleeding and it also helps you eject the placenta, right? And it speeds all that up along. Now, for me, I was going with minimal intervention possible at that point. And I said to my midwife, I was like, well, if what is the purpose of the oxytocin? She told me, like I said, to contract the uterus to prevent bleeding. I said, how fast acting is that oxytocin? And she said to me, she goes, yeah, it's really fast acting. I said, okay, how about this? When I deliver this baby, if I do not want the oxytocin, but if for any reason there is bleeding beyond what is considered normal, I give you permission to give oxytocin. So it's, I don't want anything given to me preventatively. I only want it post if it is medically necessary. So I didn't get it. And actually, I, I don't know if this had anything to do with this delivery or what, but I had almost no bleeding postpartum. Whereas with my last baby, I had a lot of bleeding postpartum. So I did not get the oxytocin um, injection postpartum. Now we also de, uh, denied the eye ointment that they give baby postpartum. So I, again, first pregnancy didn't even know they did this because nobody asked for my permission, but when babies are born, at least in Canada, they give an eye ointment, which is an antibiotic to prevent the baby from getting, um, pink eye in the eye. Should the baby have been given birth to a mother who had chlamydia? Now, they test you for STDs like chlamydia when you get pregnant, and I am 100% sure I didn't spontaneously contract chlamydia during my pregnancy, so I was not wanting to give my baby preventative antibiotics 
for pink eye. And this for me, like if you've listened to any of my episodes on gut health, you'll know that antibiotics wipe out good and bad gut bacteria, which can set you up for all kinds of immune problems. And your, your just immune system is not there. And it can take years to rebuild your immune system from a single bout of antibiotics. So I was not willing to give my daughter preventative antibiotics for something like pink eye which can be easily treated if she ended up getting it, which I was not at all concerned about given the fact that I knew I did not have chlamydia. So we said no to that. The other thing we said no to was the vitamin K injection that they give baby postpartum. Now this is the one that's gonna be a little more controversial. Like I said, talk to your doctor about it, make your own decisions. But when we started looking into the vitamin K injection that they give baby, it's it's given to help boost baby's vitamin K level so that they do not have vitamin K deficiency bleeding or they don't hemorrhage out, right? So if you look at how babies are meant to evolve, their vitamin K levels don't begin to optimize until eight days postpartum. So this injection is given to help um, establish baby's vitamin K levels early on so they don't bleed out. Now, when I started looking into like what is in this vitamin K injection and you look at the insert that comes with the vitamin K injection, it is one of the only injections with what is called a black box warning on it. So this black box warning says that this, um, this vitamin K injection can cause death in babies, albeit rare, it can cause death. Most injections do not have a black box warning indicating that death has been a side effect in babies from this in past research studies. And I was like, huh? And so what it actually says, if you go to read the black box, it says that given it should only be given intravenously or intramuscularly, so into the vein or into the muscle of the baby in extreme circumstances when there is bleeding because it can cause these death in babies. Now, if you go onto the website for the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually advises doctors to give this vitamin K injection intramuscularly, which is one of the ways it can cause death in babies. Now, for me, that freaked me right out. I'm like, wait a second. The the little insert on the vitamin K says, if you give this into the muscle, it can it has in we have studies or we have results that it has killed babies. And the American Academy of Pediatrics is advising to give it intramuscularly. That to me was a big red flag and I was like, you are not touching my baby with that vitamin K. Like I said, this is something that I got super passionate about during my pregnancy, was really looking into all this stuff. You get to do you, we do me. I don't have judgments or opinions on if you do it, if you don't do it. So the same respect goes both ways, but I decided instead, I talked to my midwife about this, about this concern, and she was very understanding. And we actually worked out that we did vitamin K drops instead. And it was actually super simple. We gave her, it was a certain amount of drops on the day she was born. We gave her a certain amount of drops on day or week two and certain amount of drops on week four. Now this to me getting a just drops of vitamin K and it was approved by my midwife carried so much fewer risks than an injection that carries a black box warning with death as one of the very rare, but potential side effects. I just, it wasn't, it wasn't a decision for me after that. So that's definitely something that I wish I would have known. 
in my first pregnancy. So I'm just leaving that there. That is what we did. Um, okay, so anyways, on with the rest of the birth stuff. So baby was happy, baby was healthy. Um, we went home that same day, that day. Um, my first one, we were definitely, my daughter was in the NICU, so we were at the hospital for like four or five days. But with this baby, everybody was healthy and happy. I recovered really well. I went home the same day. Um, and because we did that, we actually just got the hearing test that's done at the hospital done a couple weeks later. And the nice thing about having a midwife is she actually came to the house. Um, she came to our house what was it, the next night or that night? I can't remember. I think it was the next night. Anyway, she came to the house and she weighed baby again and she um, did the PKU, like the heel prick test that tests for all those different um, different genetic diseases like cystic fibrosis and stuff like that. So the other benefit of having a midwife was she got to come to our house, which was wonderful because honestly, postpartum, you just want to be home. You just want to be cuddled up with your family and your baby. And like, it was just really nice having the option to have that at home instead of having to stay overnight at the hospital. So that was the birth experience. Now there's a couple things that I want to share with the postpartum period. And we kind of did it fun. So I told you guys that we found out our gender when baby was born. So what we did with my family is we had everyone come over that night and we had the baby laying on a pillow with a diaper on, on the floor. That was it, just a diaper. And the whole family came over and everyone stood around and looked at her and I said, okay, everyone thought it was a boy. Does anybody want to change their mind now that they've seen the baby? And everyone was like, that is definitely a boy. That's definitely a boy. Look at, look at, you can tell, blah, 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 blah. And then what we did was we actually, my husband filmed everything. This is, it was such an amazing video that he made. Um, we took the diaper off and pulled it down. And obviously it was a girl. The reactions from my family and my husband's family were amazing. Everyone was so shocked, so excited. There was tears, there was jumping up and down. Oh my gosh, it was such a fun way to do that with our family. And everyone got to find out in the same place, you know, like within that night before it went out on the internet and nobody had to find out like online. It was great, I loved it. I loved that I would do it again that way. Um, but some other things postpartum. So I actually had to be on blood thinners postpartum because I didn't know this, but you are, it's something ridiculous. It's like you are 10 times more likely to clot in your first six weeks postpartum than you are normally. And since I have a history of blood clots, I have been put on blood thinners both after my first pregnancy and this one. And like I said, I want minimal intervention, but this is one of those things where I felt it was medically necessary because the last thing I want is to get a stroke or a pulmonary embolism or have a heart attack when I have a brand new baby and I have responsibility to these little humans in the world. So I was on injectable blood thinners for six weeks, which is not a big deal. I did it last time, it was fine. Um, but this postpartum period was definitely a much harder recovery and I, again, this goes back to when I said in pregnancy, like nobody prepared me for how much harder pregnancy was going to be with a two-year-old at the time. Nobody prepared me for how much postpartum was harder with a two-year-old as well, because you're still being a mom and you're still caring for your kids and still picking them up. And, and what actually happened or what my midwife believed is that like, I, she believes I may have knocked this. I didn't even know this was a thing, but when your placenta comes out, um, it leaves a big wound on your inner uterus that scabs over, right? And that's why the bleeding is on and off because the bits of the scab fall on and off. If you've been through postpartum, you'll know that. 
Um, but she believes I knocked mine completely off because I, my bleeding had almost stopped postpartum and then it came back really fast and furious out of nowhere. So I actually had to get an ultrasound and blood test because they were checking to see, did you have, did I have retained placenta, which means little pieces were stuck and, or do I have to get blood tests because they thought it could have been a uterine infection. Oh my gosh. It was so exhausting going through all of that postpartum. It was really emotionally challenging. She put me on chair rest for two weeks, which meant I wasn't even able to like get the kitchen clean because that would cause an increase in bleeding. So I had to sit and I was crying because it was so, I'm such an active person. It was so hard not moving around all the time. So if you have children already, give yourself the grace of just sitting down so you don't end up in the position I was in. And like I said, I was also on blood thinners, which could have also made it a lot worse, but recovery was so much harder this time, that's for sure. So into some of the hack things that you might be able to carry forward with you in your postpartum. So I have three words that I want all postpartum women to hear. Pelvic floor physiotherapy. Pelvic floor physiotherapy. If you are peeing when you run or jump or when you sneeze, it is not normal and it is fixable. There is nothing wrong with you. It's not a side effect of birth. It has nothing to do with vaginal birth or C-section. It has to do with the fact that you carried a baby that sat on your pelvic floor muscles, weakened and stretched them out, and now we have to strengthen them. And it is not just about doing Kegels. If you have never been for pelvic floor physiotherapy, it is so worth going. It is worth the money. So after my first daughter was born, I went to my OB, my regular doctor, at the four-week checkup mark. She checked. She says, everything looks good. You're cleared to go back to exercise. And so I jumped on my spin bike. I went back to working out because, like, I, I mean, I still had my fitness, but what I didn't know is just because your doctor clears you to go back to exercise does not mean you should. I ended up with two prolapses. I have a rectocele and a cystocele, which basically means the back wall of the vaginal canal and the bladder are falling into the vagina a little bit. Now, I know that, that this is probably a little bit more than you'd ever care to know about me, but this is important because I want all women to know that there are solutions to these things and you are not stuck if you are feeling uncomfortable. And the way I like to think about it during my first uh, postpartum experience, it felt like, and this is a really funny analogy and women will know what I'm talking about here. It felt like I had sneezed and if you had a tampon in, a tampon had come out halfway. And that's what it felt like. And I didn't know what was going on. My doctor told me I was fine. I was exercising, but I went to a pelvic floor physiotherapist and she's like, no, you have prolapses. I was like, oh my gosh. So you mean I wasn't good to go back to exercise? She goes, no, you weren't. Nobody's good to go back to exercise. You should wait at least eight weeks until you start anything and then start pelvic floor therapy and blah, blah, blah. So I was able to, with therapy, physical therapy, fix everything from the first time. And then this pregnancy postpartum, I just knew that this was something I wasn't fooling around with. So four weeks postpartum, I went back to uh, to pelvic floor physiotherapy to deal with the pubic joint and the SI joint pain because it was still lingering. So she helped me get that under control. And then at six weeks, I went back to post um, to pelvic floor physiotherapy. Now, if you've never been to pelvic floor physiotherapy, it is very different than 
regular physiotherapy. So don't go to a regular physiotherapist and have them look at you from the outside and call that pelvic floor physio. It's not. Pelvic floor physiotherapy is done partly externally and partly internally, which means they actually manually teach you how to contract the right muscles at the right time in the right order. So they do this by you know, having their finger on a certain muscle inside of you and they're like, okay, feel this muscle here and you're like, yeah, relax it. Okay, now feel this muscle here and it contracts it. Oh, but you also just contracted this. You have to keep this one relaxed and this one contracted. And okay, I want you to melt the muscle around my finger here. And so basically what they're doing is they're giving you biofeedback on your pelvic floor muscle contractions because my muscles were all over the place because they were so weakened and stretched out from holding baby. So it has been fantastic. And there were ways of contracting my pelvic floor that I didn't know about last time. And like, oh, just, it was fantastic. So I would highly, highly recommend, even if you think you're fine, make that time to go even just to a one appointment and ask. Because I always was told to like, do your Kegels after, right? But when I went the first time and they actually checked my pelvic floor muscles, they're like, oh my gosh, your muscles are tonic, which means they were seized. And this was from years of doing powerlifting and creating tension through my core, but never relaxing my pelvic floor muscles. So if I'd have done Kegels, it would have made my pelvic floor worse. I had to learn how to fully relax the muscles before I contracted them again. So pelvic floor therapy, in my opinion, is something that should not be missed for every mother postpartum. It has made a difference for me. I am almost, what am I now, six, seven weeks into physical therapy and been doing my exercises religiously because I want to build upon a frame that is stable, that is strong, and that is symmetrical so that I don't end up with injuries down the road because my hips weren't supported or they were out of line or my pelvic floor wasn't contracting. Oh my gosh, so good. On the next topic that I want to give you some insight as to what really worked for me was breastfeeding. Now, I actually got two tips for breastfeeding that changed the experience for me. So there is a wonderful woman on Instagram and her whole profile is about breastfeeding support. Her handle is at kinda crunchy Shay. Kinda, K-I-N-D-A, crunchy, C-R-U-N-C-H-Y-S-H-E-A, Shay. And she, she was wonderful. Her profile is all about breastfeeding support. I met her because she followed my page, but She told me something that I didn't know. She said, don't pump until six weeks. Now, with my first daughter, I had a breast pump and I was like, yeah, let's use it. Let's get this huge stock in the fridge going. And I would pump all the time. And I had a huge stock in the fridge, but I had such intense engorgement that I would wake up in the middle of the night crying because my boobs would be so full and so painful. And she goes, yeah, you don't want to pump until your milk supply is established, if at all possible. So I listened to her advice. And I've got to say, not only am I still having adequate milk supply and I still am able to pump now, but I do not get painful engorgement that wakes me up in the middle of the night and I do not get the same amount of leaking that I did in the first pregnancy. So this made such a difference to not pump before six weeks. So just because we have pumps doesn't mean we should use them. And the other thing I didn't know my midwife told me is that Haka pump 
By the way, there's a whole pregnancy hack. There's something called a hack up pump, H-A-K-K-A. It's a hand pump that you stick on the, the boob that's not feeding the baby and it catches all the runoff. It's such an efficient way to pump and doesn't take any extra time. I highly recommend it. This um, also counts as pumping. So my midwife even said to me, she goes, yeah, when you have um, the pump going at the same time as your baby's feeding, your, ba- your body thinks you have twins. So it just keeps rising the amount of production to meet the demand. So the more you pump, the fuller and more painful your boobs are gonna feel and the more you're gonna have to pump and it creates this cycle of constantly being over engorged. So I didn't do that this time for the first six weeks and it has made a massive difference. So hats off to kind of crunchy Shay for really making a difference and being such a wonderful support in the DMs um, over this time. So the other thing that my midwife told me is my daughter was cluster feeding in the postpartum period, which means she was feeding every hour and a half to two hours, especially at night. Um, And not that there's anything wrong with that, but she gave me a really interesting tip. She said, okay, feed the baby on one side. And then when the baby is done, done, When the baby is dumb, oh my gosh. When the baby, I've been talking for a while now, please give me some grace. When the baby is done, pump only that side and finish it out because there are two parts of breast milk. The part that comes out first is high in protein and the part that comes out after is high in fat. So the part that comes first, the protein part is called the foremilk and the hind milk comes out after. The hind milk is very fatty. This is the milk that fattens the babies up and also helps them stay fuller longer. So sometimes when babies are little, they don't drain the breast all the way, so they only get the protein milk, so they're hungry more often. So what she had me do was when baby's done, finish pumping that boob after with the pump, and what will happen is I will get all of the fatty milk in the the basically the pumped milk and what she said to do was when it comes time to feed the baby next feed them that pumped fatty hind milk then let them feed on the breast and then at the end pump the hind milk after that so you're kind of on this cycle of like feed the fatty hind milk with the bottle then breastfeed then pump the hind milk and do that and I found what that did was it stretched out the feedings from every hour to about every two or three hours which was oh my gosh life-giving at the beginning but this is the best tip she said when you're done feeding your baby right before you go to bed because this is when the baby was waking up every one two three hours at night she said right before baby goes to bed feed them as much hind milk as you can. So any stored up extra you have of that really fatty milk, because just like in us, it keeps us fuller longer. So baby Tenley started sleeping through the night, like for four hour stretches starting at about two weeks old. Yeah, it was fantastic. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's life-giving to get four hours of straight sleep. And then eventually as she got older, we kept doing this. We eventually got to not do it as often because she didn't need it because she would, you know, drink all the milk in the breast. But she now she's 11 weeks old. She's 11 weeks old on Wednesday, so in two days from now. And she is... We put her down at 8.30 and she sleeps till 4.30, sometimes 5.30. So she's pretty much sleeping through the night right now, which is fantastic, which I think a lot of it is due to routine, having it be dark, 
the sound machine, she knows the cues. The, the same things come in the same order every night at bedtime. Number one, the room gets dark. Number two, the sound machine goes on. Number three, the sleep sack goes on. And she knows that these are cues over time. And we have taught her to put herself to sleep. So when we do these things, we'll put her into the bassinet at night and she goes to sleep and just stays asleep for the night. And we use the same thing for naps. And naps are something we're still working on right now. We're only getting between 40 minutes and an hour and a half naps. But by optimizing the way her brain perceives light and temperature and all of these other things that we are able to, she's sleeping really well, what I believe for an 11 week old baby. And I will give credit. I took a program when Hannah was a baby, my first daughter, we took a program called Taking Care of Babies. We took the zero to three months and we took the three and four month program and Hannah was sleeping through the night by four months and this baby is practically, I mean, she's getting eight hours so it's pretty close to sleeping through the night by 11 weeks old. So, I mean, everyone said to us that, you know, we just got lucky with the first baby and maybe we got lucky two times in a row. I don't know. However, if it was a combination between the stuff we learned in that course, using the same sleep optimization hacks that I use on myself, including lowering the light, turning to orange light, everything like that, we use all of those hacks with our kids and they sleep like rock stars. But, or if it was maybe taking care of babies, I don't know. It is all worth investigating because I, you know, getting seven hours of sleep stretched per night at this point does feel really good. And getting, sleep as a parent. And I mean, this goes to all the other podcasts I've recorded on this channel, but getting sleep as a parent is paramount to you being able to feel good and to feel refreshed and to feel energized. And I know not all families, and this goes with everything I've said today, not all babies are the same, not all pregnancies are the same, not all births are the same, not all families are the same. I'm just sharing my experience in the event that one tip you hear might help your pregnancy or birth or postpartum be easier. If you can take away one thing, or heck, even if you disagree with it at all, it's okay. We can still be friends and disagree, and we can still be friends and agree. So that has kind of been my experience. And then beyond that, what I'm experimenting with, not quite yet because I haven't gotten my period back yet, but for birth control going forward, what I am not going to be doing is going back on hormonal birth control. I have talked about that in previous episodes. And actually, I have an episode that I haven't released yet all on female hormones and female menstrual cycles coming up with an expert that I'm excited for you to meet. Um, but I will not be going back on hormonal birth control because it created crippling anxiety in me from age 15 until I went off it when I got pregnant the second or obviously for both babies but for the final time in March of 2021 I will never go back because I was never more anxious than when I was on birth control that's my personal experience so what I will be doing this time is I will be using an app called natural cycles and what this does is you take your temperature first thing in the morning and it plots where you are in your cycle because how I found out I was pregnant with this baby, you might have heard this in the return episode. I think I might have talked about it. I found out I was pregnant because of my aura ring because your temperature rises and falls during certain parts of your menstrual cycle. And I noticed that my temperature wasn't dropping and that's how I knew I was pregnant. So your temperature actually has a lot to do with when you ovulate and when you're getting your period and all of that. So I am going to be using natural cycles to um, help with birth control 
um, just going forward. And the really neat thing is Aura and Aura, meaning my Aura ring that measures my sleep stats and my body stress, Aura just partnered with Natural Cycle so that you don't actually have to do the temperature reading thing anymore um, in your armpit or what your mouth or whatever it is. Um, you actually just can read data straight off your Aura ring and your Aura ring will send your temperature data to the Natural Cycle so you don't have to do that, which I am like totally on board for. So when I get my cycle back, I will be experimenting with that and you know I'm going to give you all the updates on that. So this has been an exceptionally long podcast, but I had a lot to say and having good postpartum energy is so important if you want to go back to work. If you don't, that's cool too. My pregnancy, having running my business all the way up until the day before I gave birth, just really feeling good during the whole thing, having a good labor experience. If any of this can help you, that will help you in your life and your experience, right? And that is what becoming limitless is all about. So while this episode may not be exactly where you are right now, if you're not in any of these three stages, pregnancy, birth, or postpartum, maybe you will be one day, or maybe I'll have a friend you could send this to, or maybe you can just hear my alternative way of looking at the medical system and health, and maybe it can inspire you to start you know, being that advocate for your own health and your own family. But um, do connect with me on Instagram about this. I really do want to hear what your experiences were, what you've learned from this episode. Did you have any good takeaways? Do you agree with something? Do you not agree with something? I would love to hear from you and build this community of families and people all on this journey to becoming limitless. I hope you guys have a beautiful, beautiful week and I will see you next time. Bye. Ready to begin each day feeling energized and focused? I'd love to work with you one-on-one. In my Becoming Limitless program, you're gonna learn how to optimize your brain and body with science and biohacking so you can be highly productive and grow your business faster. Join me over at tanessashears.com slash work with me. I'll see you there.